Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church. Um, is this Andrew? There we go. Okay. Um, in a second, I'm going to explain that passage. But before I do, I want you to turn to the person next to you, say hi, and then ask them this question. It should hopefully come up on the screen. And the question is, what is the most impressive building you have been in? What is the most impressive building you have been in? So have a chat to the person next to you. Uh, so bring those conversations to a close. Afterwards, we'll have dinner and see if you able to keep on chatting about the most impressive uh, building you've been in. Sorry, we're just having a bit of mic difficulties. Here comes my lovely assistant. Give him a clap. There we go. All righty. Okay. Let me tell you about one of the most impressive buildings I've ever been in. A few years ago, I got to go to uh, the Vatican City. Uh, for those of you who do not know, the Vatican City is basically the capital of Catholicism, uh, and it is... I don't think it's technically in Italy, but you know, you can get, it's surrounded by Italy. And um, so I got to go there and I got to go to St. Peter's uh, Basilica, uh, which is probably one of the most famous buildings in the uh, Vatican City. Uh, at the time, I had my lovely wife, Emma, and I had my oldest boy, Elijah. At the time, he was one years old, uh, but he was still incredibly heavy. Um, I tell you that detail because you weren't allowed to take prams into uh, the cathedral, and so I had to carry my son, Elijah, around. And look, I know I look massive, but it was hard work. Um, and so we didn't do like a long tour. We were there for about half an hour. We did one lap, even though you could do multiple laps. But this place was impressive. Like, I kid you not, as soon as I walked in, you're just blown away by how big this place is. Like, you try, I, I could barely see the ceiling, and from what I could see, it's just, like, all delicate, and just, you're just blown away by it. Like, everywhere you look, there's just, like, incredible statues, or there's, like, statues that Michael Angelo's created, or, you know, a whole lot of different paintings, as you can see. It's just incredible. Like, everywhere you look, there's something impressive, you know? And, and also, if I'm honest with you, everywhere you look, there's, like, a dead guy uh, and in a grave. No, no, not a grave. In a coffin. And unfortunately, it's, like, not even, like, a closing coffin. It's, like, a glass coffin. So you see everything. Anyway, a bit weird. But you're still impressed by it, right? You're still impressed by it. I wonder if you've ever been into a building and been impressed by it. You know, maybe for you, it's going to the Vatican if you've had the joy to go there. Maybe for you, it's been in Australia and you've been to, I don't know, the Sydney Opera House. Or maybe it's, you know, in Wollongong. You've been to Wollongong Central Shopping Centre. Whoa! All the new renovations they did, you know? Or maybe to redeem uh, uh, Unandera Woolworths that Mark insulted last week. Maybe you just mean to, you know, Woolies at Unidera and be like, whoa, this place is awesome. You know, has that ever happened to you? Maybe it's happened to you when you've been into someone's house. This happens to me, you know, you go to people's house and, you know, you don't say this, but as soon as you walk in there, like you compare in their house with your house. And so if you go to a really nice house, you know, you're just looking around, you're like, whoa, they've got like four rooms, you know, and you're like, they've got ducted air conditioning. You're like, okay, cool, 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 cool. And then, and then you see the fridge that has like ice like blocks coming out of it. And you're like, what? It's, you know, the place is so cool. And if you want honest, you want to live there, you know, you're impressed by it. You know, there's some buildings you go to and you, you're impressed by it. And, you know, some homes you go to, you want to live in. You know, if I'm honest, I don't want to live in the Vatican. The dead guy's a bit creepy. But when it comes to buildings, we're impressed by them. You know what? I think that's human nature. I think it's our generation, but it's all generations of humanity. And I know this because back in Jesus' day, they had a building themselves that they were impressed by. And the building for them was called the Temple. Here's a, slide, here's a shot of it. So the photo at the top left is a photo of Jerusalem, what it looks like now. And the bottom right is, a, I guess, an illustration of Herod's temple, Herod the Great's temple. 
which did exist until it was demolished and until Jerusalem went through multiple different wars and invasions. Now, in Jesus' day, Herod's the temple here in the bottom right was the biggest man-made structure on planet. Herod, uh, the great they call him, even though he wasn't too great, was the king of Judea. And he created, um, basically what he did is he upgraded the existing temple that was in Jerusalem. And to do that, the mountain wasn't big enough because the temple's on a mountain. So he built what's called the Temple Mount. And that's basically that really big rectangular uh, wall around the side. Um, this is an impressive feat. There's about 30 football fields uh, in terms of area. Uh, you had about 1 million um, tons of stone that was needed for this. And just like the Vatican, the temple itself was intricate. There's gold, there's marble. It's a place that you would have walked to and been blown away by. It's like the Vatican today. Like people literally would have gone to Jerusalem to see the temple and to see the temple mount. They would have gone there and just been like, whoa, whoa. And you know what's interesting is in the Bible, we're told that Jesus goes to the temple on three occasions. He goes to the temple as a baby boy, he goes to the temple as a 12-year-old, and then he goes to the temple in his final, I guess, few weeks of his life. And in today's passage, we get introduced to Jesus going to the temple for those first two times, as a baby and then as a 12-year-old. And in particular, in Luke's gospel, the theme of temple is quite an important one. And so what I want us to, to do today is I want to go through this chapter, uh, the, this passage show that was read out to us, and I want us to unpack for you what it means. Yet at the same time, I want us to be going through and asking the question, what is the point of the temple? Like, like why did it exist? I want us to go through and chat through. So we're going to be thinking about temple in terms of theme as we go through this passage. And so that's the plan, but we'll stick in Luke chapter 2, but we'll broaden a little bit as time goes on. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, Joel, that's great. It's cool that you're impressed by buildings, but I'm a bit bored even thinking about this concept of the temple. So, you know, how is this going to apply to my heart? Well, I've got two assumptions for you this morning that I assume about you. Number one, you're impressed by big buildings, okay? I'm a civil engineer, so I just think that. If you're not, I'm sorry. Um, I was a civil engineer, sorry. Uh, the second assumption I got for you, which, to be blunt, is that our hearts are easily deceived. Our hearts are easily deceived. You see that picture I had up before, I guess, of the uh, Jerusalem, and you saw the temple. Well, Herod's temple, one of the greatest buildings that's ever been built do you know, it only lasted about seven years before it then got smashed down. And I'll give you a bit of a spoiler alert. The Jewish people worshipped that temple more than they worshipped God. Their hearts were deceived to worship a created thing rather than the creator. And if I'm honest, we can do the same thing. And so that's why I want you to listen up, because we're going to be going through and talking about that as time goes on as we go through this passage. And so let's have a look at Luke's gospel and let's talk about this temple theme. Now, before we dig into our passage, though, I need to actually get us to do some work. So I need you to stick with me here. I want to do what's called biblical theology. If you don't know what that means, it's just basically I want to introduce you to the story of the Bible. And I just want to give you a quick um, snapshot in regards to this temple theme in the scriptures. And I know this is going to take a bit of effort. And so for that reason, I've created a diagram, right? Like I went all out this week. And so here's my diagram. Here's my drawings. There's a tree for the garden, that's a tent for the tabernacle, and the third one is a temple, believe it or not. Anyway, let me talk this through with you guys. You see, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, what we're told is that God created humanity and that God walked with them. You see, God was with His creation. He was with His people. But then as we know, Adam and Eve rebelled against Him. But something that, we, a little detail that we can sometimes miss is that when God says to Adam and Eve that they should work and take care of the garden... What he's basically saying here is, hey, look, the Garden of Eden is a special place. 
it, it's sort of like a sanctuary. In other words, sort of like a temple. It's a place where I dwell with you in this part of the planet. You see, there's a lot of connections between the Garden of Eden and, and eventually the tabernacle and the temple. And there's certain imagery in terms of the, the way the temple and the tabernacle is made to point back to the garden. Even the entrance to the Garden of Eden was from the east. And those two words, take care and work the garden, are the exact same two Hebrew words that are used to talk about to the priests in regards to the tabernacle and the temple. And so it's important you understand that in the beginning, God walked with his people. He dwelt with them. But then unfortunately, sin came. Rebellion came against God, who was the king. And so Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, out of God's presence. And now there's a division between God and his people. You see, a holy God cannot be amongst unholy, unclean people who rebel against him. And so what you see in the storyline of the Bible, though, is that God desires to walk with his people once again, to be with his people once again. And so that's the storyline of the scriptures. Eventually what occurs is that God gets his nation together called Israel. And at the time, they're living in the desert after he redeems them out of Egypt. And once again, God wants to dwell with them. He wants to live amongst them. But because of the fact that they're sinful... He's going to have to do so in a, in, in a flawed way. But he comes up with a solution. And so they didn't have buildings at the time. They had tents. And so what we're told is that God said to his people, I'll dwell amongst you in a tabernacle. Big fancy word that just means an impressive tent. A tent that had lots of rooms and had a, and a spot where God's presence would specifically uh, be made known. Now, not because God would only be in the tent. He's everywhere. But he was making his presence known in the temple so that people may know God and be with him. Eventually, the Israelites end up taking the nation of Israel or Canaan. And then what happens is the tabernacle gets converted into a permanent structure, the temple. And the same thing occurs in 1 Kings. God's presence is made known to the temple. You see, the temple and the tabernacle were flawed systems. They weren't perfect, but they are systems that allowed God to be with his people. But because of sin, though, there's many, war, there's many um, walls, curtains, barriers, and his people needed to make sacrifices so they could be around a holy God. Okay? That's the context. That's the work. Now let's dig into Luke chapter 2, and let's see what it teaches us um, in this passage. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. Look at Luke chapter 2, 22 to 24. We'll read out that to begin, and it should be on the screen. It says this, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, what's going on here? Well, let me explain this to you. Uh, what's happened in the early part of chapter two is that Jesus has been born. And he's been born to Mary, who was a virgin, but also she was uh, betrothed or ended up getting married to Joseph. And what we're getting told here in this part of the scriptures is that Mary and Joseph were faithful, righteous, law-abiding Jews. You see, what occurred is that uh, they gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, which was really far away from their hometown of Nazareth. And so after they gave birth, they went all the way back to Nazareth. But then 40 days after Jesus' birth, because they are righteous people who want to fulfill the law, they went back 160 kilometers, a week journey or two weeks back and forth to Jerusalem. And they went to the temple. And they went to the temple for two reasons. Number one, Mary wanted to uh, go there and be purified. 
You see, in the book of Leviticus, in chapter uh, 12, it says whenever a woman gives birth, that 40 days after she has a son, that she is to go to the temple in Jerusalem, that she is to ascend up to Jerusalem, ascend up the temple, and there she is to give two sacrifices to purify her from a sin and uncleanliness. And this is what Mary and Joseph want to do. And what we see here is actually that their sacrifices were a pair of doves or young pigeons. Now, what that means is that they actually are poor. You see, if they were wealthy or just middle class, then they would have sacrificed lambs. But God allows for the poor to also sacrifice birds. And so Mary and Joseph, they're devout, they're righteous, and they trust in God. They take two weeks' wages to go on this trip, a dangerous trip to Jerusalem, to offer sacrifices to God to purify Mary. That's the first reason why they went. The second reason is, though, they wanted to consecrate, or in other words, dedicate, maybe you've heard that word, Jesus, their firstborn son. You see, they wanted to take Jesus to the temple and they wanted to pray for him and say, God, look, this is your son. You've gifted us to him and we want him to bring glory to your name. How that works out for them, they don't know yet, but they'll soon find out. Personally, I I do the same or I try to do the same with my boys all the time. Uh, Whenever Elijah and Isaac were born, I remember praying for them in the hospital saying, God, these boys are yours. You gifted them to me for a season, but they are yours. May you bring glory to their name through them. And I think if you're a parent, you do, you'll do the same. Or when you become a parent, you'll do the same. And so two reasons why they go to Jerusalem, purification, consecration. But basically what's going on here is that Luke is trying to make it crystal clear to us that Joseph and Mary are righteous, that they follow the law. Matter of fact, the word law is repeated five times in this passage. And verse 39 summarizes this part where it says, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to their hometown. Luke is being emphatic here. Mary and Joseph are righteous. But also, Jesus is fulfilling the law even since he's a little baby boy. And that's what's going on here. Now let's move on though. Let's have a look at two other stories which Luke tells us about in regards to Simon and Anna. So firstly, Simon. And so... As Anna, um, let's actually, I'll go to the passage. Let's read out. Sorry, verse 25 says this. Now there's a man in Jerusalem called Simon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simon took him in his arms and praised God. See, what's going on here is you have Simon who is a a devout follower of God and he is awaiting the Messiah to come. He's not distracted by by all these pretty stones in this big temple. He's focused. He's looking for this Messiah to come. And then here comes these parents, nervous as they are from a little town of about maybe 100 people in Nazareth. They're in this big city of Jerusalem, maybe 100,000 people here to consecrate their son and they meet Simon. And what Simon says here, he says, this baby is special. You know, I've heard this before. He's going to be the Savior. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be a light, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. You see, what we're seeing here is that this baby is special, that he is unique. But then Simon goes on to say something which is really interesting to Mary in particular. In verse 35, 34, sorry, he says this. He says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Jesus is like probably the most famous person in history, probably one of the most polarizing figures in history. 
People either love him or people hate him. He has literally changed our world. And what he does is Jesus comes and he preaches the good news of the gospel. He preaches the bad news of sin and how we need a savior. He reveals our hearts and our need for him. He does this to myself. He does this to you. And he also did this to Mary. See, what Simon's saying here is, look, this baby is special. You know, Joseph and Mary, you guys might be righteous, but you've got to understand, he's also going to reveal your heart too. And he's going to pierce your own soul, which is important for us to pick up on. You see, a guy called C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of him, a famous author. He's got this a famous quote where he said, Jesus is either a lord, a liar, or a lunatic. And basically, you know, this is what's going on here. Simon's like, this child is going to change the world. You can't, you can't evade him, can't elude him. He's going to pierce your soul as well as Mary's. And so after Simon, we then get introduced to Anna. Uh, she's a lady in a, who's 84 years old, uh, has been a widow um, probably for about 60 years. 60 years. Ladies, could you imagine that? It's a long time. And what I love about Anna here is that she is a ferocious woman of God. You know, like instead of complaining or whinging to God about her situation, the fact that her husband died or the fact that she hasn't remarried or the fact that she's been lonely for 60 years, sorry, she's, what she do? she's in the temple praising God, praying to God, worshiping God. What an encouragement. And what happens here? Well, she basically does what Simon says. She says, this child is unique. This child is unique. And she does the same thing as Simon. You see, what's going on in this passage is that Mary and Joseph, they're righteous, and Jesus is unique. Jesus is unique. He's going to be the Savior, the light to the Gentiles, the Redeemer. Look out, see what this child's going to do. See what this child's going to do. And so that's what's going on in that first section of our Bible reading. Then we come to the second section of our Bible reading. Now, I think what's really interesting about this part is when Jesus is 12 years old, is that this is the only account we have of Jesus uh, no other gospel have, has this when Jesus is, I guess, an adolescent or a child. You know, and we find this really interesting because, you know, we've heard about Jesus' life and his ministry. We've heard about his birth. But we're a bit like, what happened in between? Well, that's when we get to this part, which is really helpful. And, uh, and there's a reason why it's here. And so what goes on in this part of the scripture? Well, uh, we don't have time, so let me just summarize it to you. Uh, basically, what occurs is that uh, Joseph... And Mary, they go to Jerusalem once again. They go for Passover. And this time they take Jesus. They didn't any other year, but they took Jesus this time. So they've gone from a town of about 100, I mean, sorry, a town of about 100 in Nazareth to go to Jerusalem, 100,000 people. And when they get there, they do the Passover. And then they go home and they forget Jesus. They forget Jesus. And it takes them a whole day to figure it out. (laughs) And then they figure out, what? Head count? Where's Jesus? Not here. Ah, dull. Okay, they turn around. They go back to Jerusalem. They try and find him. It takes five days in total for them to find Jesus. Find Jesus. Uh, last year, um, my wife uh, lost our son Elijah uh, for a little bit. I don't want to like blame her or anything. Like it's just the circumstance. This happened with her, not me. So uh, don't feel like I'm judging my wife. Anyway, uh, it was at the university. So the, it's like thousands of kids there, right? It's just a recipe for disaster. And so Emma took Elijah and Isaac there. And um, I, at a period of time, Eli ran away. And then Emma couldn't find him for about 15 minutes. And so Emma is freaking out. She's trying to look wherever she can in this center. She's getting the staff to come help her. I think she might have even called me and just panic, uh, which is fair enough. 
eventually uh, she walked up these stairs to this section which we'd never been before and we didn't know existed uh, and she found Elijah next to another kid dressed as a superhero. Elijah saw Emma basically in tears and walked up to her and said, Mommy, were you afraid? It's okay. I was with Batman. <laughs> in that moment, I think Emma probably just wanted to like scream at him, but you know, like that was a pretty cute reaction. You know, it's pretty difficult to parent when your kids are pretty cute, right? I think it's even more difficult to parent when your kid is the son of God, right? Like, you know, like Mary and Joseph, they're having a bad day, right? Like they've lost Jesus, not for 15 minutes, but for five days, you know? And, and he's not precious like Elijah. He's the son of God. This is a bad day. And so you can imagine when Mary and Joseph eventually find him, they probably just want to tell him off. And yet he just responds in such a way where he does, he's not sorry. But what does he say? He says, why were you searching for me? Bit cryptic. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? You know, it's almost like Jesus is like, don't, don't you remember all those prophecies that was, was said about me? Don't you remember, Mary, how you were a virgin birth and how an angel told you I'm the son of God? Like, doesn't it, shouldn't it make sense to you that I'll be in the temple, my dad's house? You know, personally, I still feel for Mary and Joseph. Like, it'd be tough to be Jesus' parents. Like, could you imagine being Joseph in particular and maybe like you're do, he's doing his carpentry business and Jesus is by his side and he just gets frustrated and like throws things and you're like, Mary would just, you know, pat him on the back and be like, Joseph, what would Jesus do? <laughs> like, man, that would be rough. That'd be rough. Anyway, what's going on here? Why do we have this story? We don't have it in any of the other gospels. Why is it here? Well, I mentioned this to us a few weeks ago. In particular, in Luke's gospel, Luke wants to show us how Jesus was human, how he was human. He was human, and as a result, he had parents, and he obeyed his parents. He obeyed his earthly parents, and they said, come back home, but he also obeyed his heavenly father by going to his father's house. You see, we're told here twice in this, in this part of the Bible that Jesus grew in wisdom, that he grew in general. You see, Jesus wasn't just born as a baby and then 30 years later became a man like that. He wasn't a baby for 30 years. No, he grew. He matured. He was human. And that's what Luke's trying to tell us here. But I think also he's trying to say to us here that, you know what, Jesus knew why the temple existed. It was God's house. It was God's house. It wasn't something to be worshipped, but it was something to go to to worship God. You see, in this part of of Luke's gospel, I think there's probably a pretty positive view of the temple. You know, Jesus fulfills it as a baby by his parents, yes, but also he goes to it. He learns there with other teachers. He talks to people, and then he says it's his father's house. He has a positive view of the temple. But unfortunately, Jesus was one of only a few that knew why the temple existed. You see, later on in Luke's gospel, when Jesus comes back, like I said, uh, before he is killed, I wonder if you remember what he does. In Luke chapter 19, he comes into the temple, and it's corrupted. People are trying to make money by sell sacrifices. People are worshiping the temple instead of God. And so Jesus flips the tables. He gets a whip and he drives out the sheep and the cattle and the doves. He comes and he says to them specifically, he says, It is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now after doing that, Jesus continues to teach and preach in the temple, but the religious authorities want to kill him. And then eventually he even says to his disciples in Luke 21, Basically, his disciples are like, man, look at this temple. It's so big. And it's like beautiful stones. It's so good. And, and then Jesus just rebukes them plainly. And like, it's just a building. 
It will be destroyed. It will be destroyed. And like I said, he was right. In 70 AD, the Romans came and tore it down after a Jewish uprising. Which begs the question though, right? Like if, if, if the temple was a good gift and it was an area in which people can go, go to worship God and know God, why does God allow it to be destroyed? You know, and why does Jesus prophesy that it will be? I'll give you two reasons. The first one, the most important one I think for us to understand right now, is that the temple got changed from being a place of worship into an object of worship. It changed from being a place of worship into an object of worship. You know how I said before how we're easily deceived? Well, the Jews were easily deceived. Their hearts were deceived into not only being impressed by this building, but actually to worshipping it. They forgot that the temple was an imperfect arrangement. They forgot that all these different courts of the Gentiles, the women and the priests, actually were signifying to them, hey, look, this is not what it's meant to be. There's distance between you and God. These sacrifices are pointing to something else. This is not a perfect arrangement. You see, they, they forgot, that they, they got distracted, their hearts were deceived by what looked pretty, and they missed the real price. Uh, I'm talking about my children a lot, I'm sorry about that, but hopefully the stories are helpful. Uh, I've got my oldest, Elijah, who's now five, but when he was two, it was his birthday, and so what we did is we bought him a scooter, he really wanted a scooter, he was talking about a scooter for so long, I'm like, alright, we'll get it for you. And anyway, for his birthday, we bought him the scooter, and we put it in the lounge room, so when he'd wake up, he'd be like, whoa, scooter, mom, dad, you're the best in the whole world. Uh, but we thought to, you know, because we want to be pretty, that we'd put some like balloons around it, like colored balloons, and we'd even put like, uh, you know those Kmart bubble making things that are like a dollar, put one of them down there as well, just to make it look nice. Anyway, in the morning, Elijah wakes up, rubs his eyes, looks in the room, and he goes, balloons! And just runs and just grabs the balloons and then like literally plays with them for like hours until they pop and like blow out. And then when he's done with the balloons, he picks up the bubbles and like blows them for like, I don't know, five seconds and then pours out the solution. And then didn't even look at the scooter for like two days. And you're just like, what's going on, kid? You know, the exact same thing is happening here with the Jews in the temple. You know, they've been blown away by what's pretty and they're missing actually what it was pointing to, what it was pointing to. You see, they idolized. In other words, they worshipped the temple. And when you idolize something, it's when you worship something that's not God. It's when you worship creation rather than the creator. And that's what they were doing. And if I'm straight with you, that's what we do as well. If I'm straight with you, our hearts get distracted by things of this world and we, and we forget about what is actually the most important thing in our life, who we should be most impressed by. Let me give you three potential scenarios that maybe could be diagnostic for your heart. I think at times, and, and I'm in this boat, by the way, we can worship ourselves. Maybe you think that's a weird, thing, weird category. Like, Joel, I don't know about you, but I don't go to bed at night and get on my knees and say, dear myself, I hope that I have a good day today and forgive me for my sins against you, myself. Like, we don't do that. And so we don't think that we possibly would worship ourselves. But, but here's a few questions for you. Who do you ultimately live for? Is it yourself or is it God? Here's another one. Who do you ultimately trust the most in life? Is it you or is it God's word? Or here's another one. Whenever you have some problems in your life, who do you go to solve them and save you? Do you try and fix the problem or is it God? We can worship ourselves. Secondly, we can worship others. 
hopefully this one is uh, something we're used to and understand. I've spoken about this before, but in relationships, we can place this unbearable pressure upon our spouses or people we're dating that they are to be godlike and never to let us down. And in doing so, we worship them. Or thirdly, it could be possessions, maybe a new car, a new house, new clothes, new technology. You know, I think we all know we do this and we love the, you know, the high we get and then we know it dies after a few days, but then we want to get it again like we're addicted to sugar. And even though we know that basically all our possessions are destined for the tip, we just keep going back for more and more. There's three ones, ourselves, others, maybe possessions. You know, God allowed this temple to be destroyed because people turned it into an object of worship instead of allowing it to be the place of worship. That was the first reason why God said, let's get rid of it. But the second reason, and I love this, it got destroyed because Jesus was the better temple. Jesus was the better temple. Like, think about this, right? If you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to John chapter 1. Um, John's Gospel is another one of the Gospels. John 1 is a famous chapter. In John 1, it should come up on the screen as well, this verse. In verse 14, it says this. It says, uh, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. Or among us. Now, unfortunately, it's not on the screen. But specifically, what it's saying here is that Jesus became human and made His dwelling amongst us. That word for dwelling in the Greek can literally be translated, He pitched a tent among us. You see, when Jesus comes into human history, comes to earth, God is dwelling with his people once again. And that's the good news, that Jesus was both fully man and fully God, and that he was able to walk among sinners like you and I. Jesus is the better temple. He is the better temple that the old temple was pointing to as the ultimate sacrifice of all sacrifices, as the ultimate high priest. You see, Jesus dies so we may worship God, so we may know God, so we may have God in our life. His blood purifies us of all sin like those sacrifices did for Mary. That's the good news. And what's really incredible is I've got another diagram. Hopefully it should come up on the screen if Mal's there. What I said to you before is that God dwelt with his people in the garden, but then he had to do so imperfectly in the tabernacle and then the temple. But then God does so perfectly, fully in Jesus Christ when he comes. And Jesus tells us that he is a new temple, in John 2 specifically, where he says, in three days I'll destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. Now he's not talking about Herod's temple, he's talking about his body himself. But then once Jesus dies and then rises and then ascends into heaven, we can't know God, can we? But Jesus then sends the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can know God fully. And in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says this, it says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. And so we may not know God and be with God perfectly in this life, but we do have the Holy Spirit so we can and know him spiritually, albeit not physically. And then you get to the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 21, 22, in, in heaven, it's, the author of that says this. It says, this is John writing about heaven. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the, and the Lamb are its temple. Like, that's the, like, why does the temple exist? It exists to point to Jesus. It exists to point out a flawed solution, and it exists to point out to Jesus, who is the flawless one, how God can walk amongst his people again, how sin can be dwelt with, and how we can know God spiritually in this age, and one day we'll be with him physically to praise him forevermore. I love that. I love that. 
And yet, church, the final thing I'm coming to close, I want to remind your heart, though, that you can be easily deceived to worship things and idols rather than God. We've got a pitch up on the screen. Hopefully, it will come up. Um, does anyone know what that is? You can yell it out. Potato. Yes, it's a potato. Uh, this potato, uh, or the photo of this potato specifically, got sold for $1.5 million uh, last year by a photographer. Um, if I'm honest with you, I don't know if it's worth $1.5 million. And the reason why I've got this photo up is to say to you is that, you know what? Our hearts can easily be deceived, you know? Like to pay $1.5 million for a photo of a potato. You know, we can think that's absurd. And yet, truth be told, we do things that are just as dumb and as absurd. You know, I, like, I, I don't want to be offensive towards our Jewish brothers and sisters, but them bowing down to the wailing war is being deceived. It's just a war. And yet we bow down to other idols in our life. We pay, spend a lot of money on things like a potato. When truth be told, we want to be worshiping our God and Lord Jesus Christ. And so my question for you is this, is what are you impressed by? Is it a building or is your Savior Jesus Christ? How will we pray to close? Father God, we thank you so much that you're a God that wants to be amongst us. We thank you so much that you're also a God that doesn't give up uh, because of sin. When we rebel against you, you show grace. You come up with a plan to save and to redeem us. We thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. and We thank you so much for your word. And we thank you, Father, how Jesus fulfills the temple and all these Old Testament promises. And we long for the day when we get to be with you face to face and there'll be no need for a temple. We long for that day. In the meantime, Father, we pray that you help us to worship you in our affections, with our emotions, everything we have. May we worship our true King and Savior. Lord, may we trust you the most rather than ourselves. May we live ultimately for you rather than ourselves. And when we have problems in our life, may we go to you, our Savior. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.